Many of the basic ideas of quantum information are analogous to classical ideas. Communication, data compression, error correction, computation. But there is one area, one big chapter in the quantum information theory textbook that has no analog in Shannon's theory. That's the chapter about quantum entanglement. Quantum entanglement between particles has been recognized and studied for a long time. The, the term goes back to Schrodinger, who called it the characteristic trait of quantum mechanics. Albert Einstein and Niels Bohr debated its meaning. And in recent decades, we have probed the phenomenon of entanglement with experiments of increasing delicacy and sophistication. Quantum information theory has taught us to think of entanglement as a kind of information. We can measure it. We can transform it from one type to another. It follows definite rules, many of which we've discovered. It can also have its uses. The essential idea of entanglement is simple to explain. For a pair of qubits, we can imagine the state 0, 0, both zeros, or the state 1, 1, both ones. The quantum rules say that we can also have a superposition of, of those, 0, 0 plus 1, 1. That, that's a definite quantum state of the pair of qubits in which neither qubit by itself has a definite state of its own. The von Neumann entropy of either qubit is one bit, but the entropy of the whole is zero. That puts the qubits in a special relationship to one another. That's entanglement. So suppose Alice and Bob are in separate places. They, they want to produce some shared entanglement. They want to produce pairs of entangled particles, one of which is in Alice's possession, and the other one is possessed by Bob. So they go to work. They do all sorts of manipulations of quantum information at their separate locations. They send ordinary classical messages back and forth. They're allowed to do any local operation or classical communication. Quantum information scientists call those LOCC operations. But try as they might, Alice and Bob cannot create any entanglement between them. LOCC operations are not enough to make entanglement. To do that, they must exchange quantum messages, quantum information transmitted coherently with its superpositions intact. Alice could create an entangled pair of qubits in her own lab and send one qubit to Bob. Equally well, Bob could create the pair and send one to Alice. Or they could both receive their own qubits from a third-party source of entangled pairs. In any case, they wind up sharing some quantum entanglement. What can they do then? One thing they can do is change the entanglement from one form to another. So suppose the entangled pairs of qubits are not very entangled. Their superpositions are 0, 0 plus just a tiny amount of 1, 1. There's much less than one e-bit of entanglement in them, which is the amount of entanglement in an equal superposition of 0, 0 and 1, 1. So by local operations and classical communication, LOCC, Alice and Bob can turn a large number of weakly entangled pairs into a smaller number of strongly entangled pairs, of e-bits. This is called entanglement concentration. It is the entanglement version of data compression. The entangled pairs might also be, be noisy. When Alice sends her qubit to Bob, it might undergo some decoherence. Uh, too much decoherence and the entanglement is lost. But it might be that Alice and Bob's qubits are still entangled, but in a noisy way. 
In this case, by LOCC operations, Alice and Bob may be able to refine their impure entanglement into fewer ebits, fewer qubit pairs with more pristine entanglement. This is called entanglement distillation, and it's the entanglement version of error correction. The preservation of quantum information depends on total information isolation, and that means that the quantum world relies on an absolute privacy that is unlike anything in our everyday experience. It's part of the reason why the quantum world seems so strange and elusive to us. And this privacy reaches not just to the behavior of individual particles, but to the relationships between particles to entanglement. So I want to share with you a, a new way of looking at quantum entanglement based on discoveries in quantum information theory made in the last few years. Now, we could begin by describing experiments involving entangled photons. But sometimes the best way to introduce a new idea is to embed it in a funny story. The everyday details in the story make the central point stand out. So consider a rather preposterous thought experiment. It's based on an old television game show called The Newlywed Game, uh, which began in the 1960s and has been revived from time to time. Perhaps you've seen it. The idea of the TV game is to take a recently married couple and interview each of them separately. Each is asked several questions about domestic life, likes and dislikes, and so on. Afterward, the answers are compared to see if they agree, and the results are often embarrassing and amusing. For our version of the game, we will make a few changes. Our couple, Alice and Bob, will again be interviewed separately. We will ask only binary yes-no questions. And there are only two possible questions. Call them X and Y. And, and each contestant will only be asked one of them. The, the questions asked might be the same, or it might be, they might be different. Now, since each couple is only asked one question each, if we want to play the game many times, we will need a supply of many couples, many Alice's and Bob's. And we'll assume that each couple has the same special relationship to each other. Well, what is that relationship? As far as the game is concerned, that relationship is all about how they answer the questions. It's, it's an informational relationship. If we ask either Alice or Bob either question, X or Y, the answer is completely unpredictable. In probability terms, the probability of yes is one half and the probability of no is one half. We have no information about any single answer before we ask any questions. On the other hand, Alice and Bob's answers are correlated. If both are asked question X, call that situation XX, then their answers always agree, both yes or both no. For any other combination of questions, XY, YX, or YY, they always disagree. When one says yes, the other surely says no. So we can summarize Alice and Bob's relationship in a table, listing the probabilities that their answers agree, depending on which pair of questions they are asked. Now, the referees of the game are concerned. Are Alice and Bob cheating at the game? Are they secretly communicating to coordinate their answers? They show no signs of it, and every precaution has been taken, but it is difficult to know for sure. Well, here is one sign that they are not. We could interview Alice and Bob very far apart, on different planets even. 
The interviews could happen at the same moment, so that even radio signals traveling at the speed of light could not pass between them before they gave their answers. Yet, yet the Alice and Bob relationship displayed in the probability table would be unchanged. The referees, who are information theory experts, still want to be sure, so they devise a mathematical test to see whether any secret signaling is happening. So here's the idea of the test. If Alice is sending messages to Bob about what happens in her own interview, it might be possible to trick her into sending a message for us. So let QA stand for the question that Alice is asked, either X or Y. And let RB stand for the answer that Bob gives, either yes or no. The question is whether QA has any influence on RB. That is, does Bob's answer give any indication what question Alice is asked? If so, then the interviewers themselves could send their own messages using Alice and Bob. Alice's interviewer encodes his message in the choice of questions he poses to Alice, QA. Bob's interviewer would then learn something about the message from Bob's answer, RB. If the interviewers could send a message in this way, that would definitely establish that some kind of signaling is going on. Therefore, the referees compute the mutual information I of QA and RB, which, as we saw in Lecture 7, is exactly the amount of information about QA that appears in RB. The referees require, as a rule of the game, that this must be exactly zero. This rule is called the no-signaling principle. And zero it is for our Alice and Bob. Whichever question Alice is asked, Bob's answer will still be yes or no, with equal probability. True, Alice's answer and Bob's answer are correlated, but the interviewers do not control the answers, so they cannot use them to send messages. And the same thing is true in the other direction. I of QBRA also equals zero. Bob's interviewer cannot send a message to Alice's interviewer using the game. Since the no signaling principle is satisfied, the referees conclude that there is no evidence of any cheating by Alice and Bob. Either they are not signaling at all, or they are doing it in such a way that they cannot be caught, even in principle. Now something unexpected happens. A third contestant appears. His name is Bill. Bill claims to have the same relationship with Alice that Bob does. In other words, he claims that his answers to questions X and Y will agree or disagree with Alice's answers in exactly the same way that Bob's do. Could this be true? Let's test it. We'll interview Bill along with Alice and Bob, all separately. We will ask Bob question X and Bill question Y. What we ask Alice, we'll get to in a moment. Bob and Bill give their answers. Their answers either agree both yes or both no, or they don't agree. So suppose the answers agree, both yes or both no. What if Alice is asked question X? Since Bob is asked X and Alice is, and Alice is asked X, then their answers will agree. However, that means that Bill would also have to agree with Alice. But that is wrong. According to the probability table, when both parties are asked different questions, they can never agree. All right, then, suppose Bob and Bill give different answers to their questions. They disagree. Now, what if Alice is asked question Y? Since she is asked Y and Bob is asked X, their, their answers will disagree. But that would mean that Bill would agree with her. 
Again, a violation of the table. If they are both asked why, they have to disagree. So either way Bill answers his own question, the same as Bob or different, there is a possible question for Alice that would disprove Bill's claim to have the same special relationship with her that Bob does. Bill is an imposter. He must be an imposter. For Alice, there can be no second Bob. The relationship between Alice and Bob has to be exclusive to them. No outsider anywhere in the universe can share in it. It is perfectly and provably monogamous. That is an extraordinary conclusion to be able to draw from a simple table of probabilities. And it does not even depend on Alice and Bob always agreeing or always disagreeing. For example, suppose we modify the probabilities in the table this way. 100% agreement becomes 85%, and 0% agreement becomes 15%. Nevertheless, it's still a relationship that would thwart any imposter Bill. No matter what answers Bill gives to his question, he will either end up agreeing with Alice too often or not often enough. Of course, this whole game of Alice and Bob has been a parable of quantum entanglement. So let's explain the parable using photon polarization. Alice and Bob each possess a photon, a qubit. Alice has photon A and Bob has photon B. Their special relationship is quantum entanglement between the photons. Now as experimental physics goes, it is actually not that difficult to obtain entangled photons. You do not need a huge particle accelerator or temperatures close to absolute zero. You only need a moderately bright laser and a crystal of beta barium borate, or BBO. When you bombard the crystal with laser light from a particular direction, photons from the laser are converted into pairs of lower energy photons that go zooming off in different directions. Those photons are entangled. We can ask questions of individual photons using a polarization analyzer, which can be something as simple as a sheet of polarizing plastic and a photon detector. If we orient the analyzer in, in this way, we are essentially asking the photon, are you vertically polarized? The photon answers yes, vertically polarized, or no, horizontally polarized. If, if we orient the analyzer in a different way, we are asking a different question. For each of our entangled photons, the answer to any polarization is random. Yes and no answers are equally likely, but the answers are correlated, and the details of that correlation are significant. If we ask the same analyzer question of each photon, we, we orient the analyzer along the, the same axis for each, then the photons always give exactly opposite answers. We ask, are you vertically polarized? And if photon A answers yes, then photon B will always answer no, and vice versa. What if we set the analyzers differently for photons A and B? Suppose we set their axes at an angle theta apart then the probability that the two photons give the same answer follows a, a simple rule. It is just equal to the sine squared of, of theta. It helps to look at a graph and consider a, a table of probabilities. When the, angle theta, when the angle is zero, zero degrees, the probability that they agree is zero. The photons never give the same answer. When the angle is 90 degrees, the probability that they agree is one the photons always give the, the same answer. And that makes sense. The same answer in this case means opposite, that is, perpendicular polarizations. 
When the analyzers are 45 degrees apart, the probability of agreement is 0.5. The photons agree about half the time. And two other angles are particularly interesting. At 22.5 degrees, halfway between 0 and 45, the photons only agree 15% of the time. While at 67.5 degrees, halfway between 45 and 90, the photons agree 85% of the time. Now here is a really important point. Entangled photons satisfy the no-signaling principle. If you want, want to think that entangled photons are secretly exchanging messages instantaneously across space, well, you are in good company. Einstein called entanglement spooky action at a distance. But you will never catch them at it, and you cannot ever use entanglement to send instantaneous messages of your own. As far as quantum information is concerned, entanglement is not communication, but simply an information relationship. As the philosopher Abner Shimoni put it, not action at a distance, but passion at a distance. Now, at last, we're ready to set up our newlywed game photon experiment. All we need to do is choose some analyzer angles to represent the X and Y questions for the photons. For photon A, the X analyzer points north, and the Y axis is northeast. For photon B, the angles are a little more complicated. X is east-northeast and Y is north-northeast. The whole point is that the angles between adjacent axes are all 22.5 degrees, but XA is 67.5 degrees from XB. Now we can make our, our table of agreement probabilities for the entangled photons. And we actually saw exactly this same table for Alice and Bob in our newlywed game thought experiment. And so we can draw the same conclusions now that we drew then. The relationship between entangled photons is perfectly and provably monogamous. No other particle anywhere in the universe can share in that relationship. The monogamy of entanglement is the deep meaning of the quantum no-cloning theorem. Uh, suppose we did have a magic quantum cloning machine, a machine that exactly duplicates the, the state of a quantum particle. If we began with entangled photons, A and B, and used the machine on B, it would have to produce a second photon, B prime, that is entangled with A in exactly the same way as B. But we know that no such photon can exist. Any attempt to clone B must fail. So either the new photon B prime will turn out to be unrelated to A, or the cloning process will destroy the original relationship between A and B in, in, in the first place. So to put it in a nutshell, because of his relationship to Alice, you can't clone Bob. The unassailable privacy of quantum information and quantum entanglement is a remarkably useful information resource. With it, we can solve an otherwise impossible problem in the science of cryptography, the problem of secret key distribution. As we saw in Lecture 12, there is such a thing as a perfectly secure cryptographic system, the one-time pad in which a new secret key is used for every message. Key information needs to be random and shared by the users, Alice and Bob, and completely unknown to any eavesdropper, Eve. 
But since Alice and Bob consume the key as they use the system, they continually need new key information. How can that be distributed to them in such a way that Eve cannot get to it too? How can Alice and Bob be absolutely sure that their key is secure? If we stick to the world of classical information, Shannon's world, then they can't be sure. It's as simple as that. There is no kind of classical key information that cannot be copied by Eve on its way from Alice to Bob. And that copying process may involve, may involve a one-way information flow from key to Eve so that no trace of her activity remains behind. That's where quantum physics comes in. The, the first method for quantum key distribution was devised in 1984 by Charles Bennett of IBM and Gilles Brossard of the University of Montreal. Their scheme is known as BB84, and its discovery marked the birth of quantum cryptography. However, as sometimes happens, the first method is not always the best. BB84 is somewhat elaborate, and it's a little hard at first to see why it does the job. But a few years later, Arthur Eckert of the University of Cambridge realized that the complications of BB84 obscured the real point of quantum cryptography. In effect, Eckerd showed that entanglement is the key. Now, that sounds like a feeble pun, but, but it is the literal truth. Let's see how it might work. We can produce entangled pairs of photons in the way we have already described and send them off, one to Alice and the other to Bob. Alice and Bob are equipped with polarization analyzers. In other words, they can ask yes-no questions of their photons. Each analyzer can be turned to any of the four axes we used before. We called them XA, XB, and so on. Now we'll label them Q1 through Q4. So when Alice receives her photon, she randomly chooses one of four axes, Q1 through Q4, and finds out if her photon has that polarization. Bob does the same for his photon. Since he is choosing his axis independently, he might make the same choice as Alice or a different one. They repeat this many times for many pairs of photons. Once they've acquired all their data, they have a, a discussion on an open classical information channel. That is, a discussion that Eve might listen in on. They tell each other which measurements they made on which photons, but they do not announce the results of those measurements. On about 25% of the photon pairs, they chose the same analyzer axes. On these entangled photons, that means that their results must disagree. So it's easy for Bob to negate his results so that they always agree. And now Alice and Bob each have a collection of random, shared, and completely secret bits. In short, they have a perfect new key. But, but wait a moment. How can Alice and Bob be sure that Eve did not tamper with their entangled photons? In fact, they may be suspicious of the source of the entangled photon pairs. Perhaps that device is being operated by Eve herself or, or was bugged somehow by Eve's agents at the factory. If you want absolute security, you have to be paranoid. You must regard everything outside your own little lab as suspect. You can't even trust the manufacturer of your photon source. But none of that matters. Alice and Bob can still achieve complete confidence in the secrecy of their key. Remember, 75% of the time, they choose different axes for their two photons. These are not as good for building a secret key since they are not perfectly correlated. Instead, Alice and Bob share these results with each other over their open channel. And by comparing notes, they can test the probabilities 
in the newlywed game experiment. They can test that Q1 and Q2 results agree only 15% of the time, that Q1 and Q4 results agree 85% of the time, and so on. And from this data alone, they can establish beyond any doubt that the information relationship between their photons is completely monogamous. No matter what tampering Eve may have attempted, Alice and Bob know that she can possess no particle or measurement record that shares their key information. Now, if Eve did attempt to do something that might reveal key information by using the photon pair to create a third photon for herself, for example, her activities would necessarily destroy the monogamous connection between the photons of Alice and Bob, and they would detect this when they compared results. So Eve can interfere with the key distribution process. But what she cannot do is fool Alice and Bob into using an insecure key to send their secret messages. She cannot eavesdrop. Now, unlike quantum computing, quantum cryptography has gone far beyond a theory and a handful of small experiments. Pairs of entangled photons have been shared over 100 kilometers apart, first using fiber optic links, and, and, and later, directly across free space. In 2012, a research team led by Anton Zeilinger of the University of Vienna shared entangled photons between mountaintop stations on two of the Canary Islands, from La Palma to Tenerife, a distance of 143 kilometers, almost 90 miles. And quantum key distribution has also gone commercial. There are several companies that now build and sell quantum cryptographic systems. Some electronic banking transactions in Europe have already been encrypted using key bits shared via quantum key distribution. And not long ago, a quantum key distribution link was set up not far from my home. The Battelle Memorial Institute, a high-tech research and development contractor, installed a 30-kilometer fiber-optic quantum key distribution link between two of their facilities in Columbus, Ohio. Outside of some, some government pilot projects, it's one of the first in the United States. It almost certainly will not be the last. And that makes sense. Most modern cryptography avoids the key distribution problem by using a public key system. The encryption key is not particularly private. It can be published in the newspaper, but a separate decryption key remains secret. Nevertheless, the security of a public key system is only computational, not informational. In principle, any eavesdropper has all the necessary data to, to break the code. The secrecy of the plain text relies on the sheer computational difficulty of that. It's equivalent to solving some hard mathematical problem, like factoring a large integer. But someday, perhaps a day not that far off, Quantum computers could make factoring a far easier problem. If that happens, the public key systems that we use today will become insecure. Worse, all of today's encrypted message traffic, recorded and stored somewhere, will then become readable by any adversary with a quantum computer. Remember the story of the Venona Project, Soviet messages about spies and espionage decrypted by the Americans 20 years after they were sent still contain valuable intelligence. There are secrets that need to be kept not just for months or years, but for decades. On that timescale, one-time pad encryption based on quantum key distribution provides the only really guaranteed cryptographic security. 
Frankly, I'm not sure any of my secrets are valuable enough to warrant such an absolute approach. For me, quantum entanglement and quantum cryptography are valuable because of what they teach us about what information means in our universe. Alice and Bob live in a complex world full of interacting particles. The noisy environment that surrounds them, the dense and intricate web of information exchange is continually nibbling away at every form of informational isolation. So in such a world, we may imagine three basic information tasks that Alice and Bob might wish to perform. First, Alice and Bob may want to transmit quantum information, qubits, from one to the other, defending against the noisy environment by quantum error-correcting codes. Second, they may want to, to share some entangled pairs of qubits with each other, qubits whose information relationship is provably monogamous. Third, Alice and Bob may wish to transmit classical messages that are absolutely private, that is, completely secret from any enemy that their environment might contain. Over the years since quantum cryptography was invented and improved, we have begun to understand a surprising truth. Those three things, quantum communication, entanglement, and perfect cryptography, are at root the same thing. If you are able to do one of them, you can do the other two also. Therefore, the science of secrets, the shadowy art of cryptography, is not a mere secondary chapter in the science of information. It is actually the key to unlocking what information means in the quantum world. And there is another amazing truth that we have learned. It is actually implicit in what we have already said, but, but you may have missed it. When we showed why informa the information relation between entangled particles had to be monogamous, we did not actually use the theory of quantum mechanics at all. We only used two things. One, the observed correlations between entangled photons. These are predicted by quantum mechanics, but they are also directly observable statistical facts. Two, the no-signaling principle. We cannot use the information relationship of entanglement to send messages instantaneously. That much is also a directly observable fact. We have assumed that it is true in general. Those two things are all we need to prove the monogamy of the entanglement relationship. What's that mean? It means that quantum key distribution is secure even if quantum theory itself is wrong. Logically, quantum cryptography is more firmly established than quantum theory itself. Quantum theory is, after all, a theory. It is a particularly successful theory, the best ever. Yet the history of science is, is that even successful theories can eventually be replaced by better theories. Maybe there will be a better theory as yet unimaginable that supersedes quantum mechanics as it superseded Newton. What would such a new theory be like? We obviously cannot say. But one thing we can say with a good deal of confidence, there will be a place within that theory for absolute privacy. There will be informational relationships between particles that cannot be shared. Even if quantum theory itself someday gets placed on the same dusty bookshelf with Newtonian mechanics, the monogamy of entanglement will be an enduring part of physics, even beyond the quantum.